Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Steph. Oh, goodness. There's an awful lot been going on over the last few weeks. Yeah, and there's a lot to pick apart. We want to talk about Myanmar. We want to talk about the ICC. And we're joined by our fabulous international legal expert, Priya Pillai. Hi, Priya. Hi. How are you both? Well, coping. Yes. And you? <laughs> coping. Coping. Feeling like things are kind of coming at me. But uh, I'm happy to be back in the studio with Janet and to nerd out about international justice with you. I think we should also mention in this context that uh, Priya is the head of the Asia Justice Coalition and she's on the board of uh, Opinion Juris or Juris, depending on your affiliation, the blog. Um, But let's just start with um, a piece of news that hit the headlines, international headlines. There were two junior soldiers from the Myanmar army who are apparently in The Hague in the custody of the International Criminal Court's Office of the Prosecutor. But um, let's just tease out what are the unknown unknowns and the known knowns, uh, Stephanie. Well, so there are reports of videos and some videos that you can find on YouTube, which are uh, allegedly of these men, where they confess their role in killing Rohingya men, women and children, burying the bodies in mass graves. And one of them confesses to rape. The other one confesses to being present at rape. This all happened during the 2016 and 2017 kind of clearance operations, I think is the euphemism uh, they use where hundreds of thousands of Rohingya fled their homes in the Rakhine state. Refugees said at the time that the army had carried out mass killings and arson, and the Myanmar army has denied these accusations, saying the troops were just responding to kind of terrorist attacks. The videos were said to have been recorded in July this year, after the soldiers deserted from the army and were being held by the Arakan army, one of the many ethnic militias uh, fighting in Myanmar. I gave Matt Smith from the human rights organisation 45 Rights a call because they were the ones who looked at the videos, they got them from the Arakan army and did quite a lot of work to try and establish how credible these confessions are. Almost everything that the two soldiers, Myo Tun and Zanam Tun, share in these separate individual confessions is consistent with what we had documented, what the UN fact-finding mission had documented, uh, the, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, uh, Refugees International, other organizations, Human Rights Watch, and, and others. So we, we took a closer look at them. But then I think, you know, when, when these two soldiers appeared on the Bangladesh border, presenting themselves to Bangladesh authorities, seeking protection, and then again confessing their crimes, that I think in a significant way added to the credibility of the original testimonies, of the original confessions. So they they took on a new meaning once these soldiers were no longer in an an area controlled by the American army. And they certainly took on a new meaning when uh, we learned that they were brought to The Hague. And I spent all last week frantically calling everybody I knew and everybody I didn't know, trying to confirm not so much this transfer. I have sources that say that they're in The Hague, but I have nobody to say exactly where they are in The Hague and what they're doing. So I can't actually say anything uh, more concretely in that I do believe they are in The Hague. And um, the big question is in kind of what capacity are they in The Hague? 
just before we go into that, maybe it's important also to note what they say in the videos. They do actually name other people in the army. They accuse specifically six senior commanders of ordering the crimes. They allege that phrases in the orders were things like exterminate all and kill all in relation to the Rohingya. Um, now, the ICC, the International Criminal Court case, is about crimes against humanity, about mass force transfer of people. But at the International Court of Justice, just down the road, there's a different process going on all about genocide. Yeah, and in that case, which was brought by the Gambia, which we've also talked uh, before about with Priya, uh, and we'll talk more about it later specifically, is about the link to the Genocide Convention and in genocide, obviously, a key issue is the intent to commit genocide. And so this kind of testimony where people say there were orders to kill all and destroy all could very well potentially be used as in court to show this intent. And we have another clip of uh, Matthew Smith explaining how that would work. This is new information because now, now we have two soldiers essentially claiming that their superior officers were ordering them to kill or exterminate all Rohingya. Uh, and I think it's noteworthy that these two soldiers were operational in two different townships. One was in Mongda Township and the other was in um, Butidong Township. And so they were a considerable distance apart from each other. At the same time, they were being given almost identical orders to exterminate Rohingya. So that to us indicates, you know, this is not a situation of rogue battalion, of a rogue battalion. This would indicate some level of coordination and consistency between battalions in that were operational in different areas, uh, which I think is quite damning in terms of assessing genocidal intent. So, my God, have we got loads of questions arising from this. Um, first, I'm going to do Stephopedia, and then we're going to go to Priya. So, Stephanie, are they going to get prosecuted here? I expect they will, uh, because the ICC has this kind of new... Um, new method of charging up. And I know that when we see them and there is all kind of uh, speculation about are these protected witnesses and then they will help the prosecution. And it's like a kind of, you know, Hollywood mafia movie where somebody with remorse comes forward and then spills the beans and then gets immunity for testifying. That really doesn't happen at the international courts. There have been cases of what they call dirty hands witnesses, but they have been prosecuted. Uh, for instance, the first ICTY case uh, where some Somebody came and said, I killed people in Srebrenica. He got five years. Uh, he still testified in the other cases. And we see the same at the ICC. In the Mali case, there is somebody who came forward and admitted guilt, but he also was still convicted. So I'm assuming that even if they work with the prosecution, the prosecution cannot afford to be seen to give them immunity or let them go. Well, let's get back to the ICC again later, maybe. But uh, Priya, we've kept you uh, hanging around listening to us warbling on about this, and you probably know a lot more than we do. What do you say? Is there something out of what we know from these videos that can make any difference to the ICJ process? Oh, that's well, I mean, there's really, I think, a lot of implications and consequences of, of this recent development. So I'll just sort of step back a little bit. I think you know, I think there are a few things to remember. The first is that you have now an an admission, admittedly by deserters from the Tatmadaw or from the Myanmar army, that they have participated in, you know, international crimes, crimes against humanity, potentially genocide. So that's something that is significant, that is sort of on the record now. And the fact that they have been transported to The Hague 
and they are clearly uh, providing information. Now, whether this is to the ICC, whether it's to the IIIM, again, I'm not sure where exactly this information and what, what the status of these two men is right now. I mean, I, I think a lot of us are, are sort of uh, in the dark on, on a lot of these aspects. There are a few sort of uh, things to keep in mind when we look at these two soldiers specifically. The testimony of these two uh, soldiers will be looked at in detail and will be assessed for its veracity and its truthfulness. So I think, you know, that's the first thing that we need to keep in mind, that this is going to be um, judged and it is going to be looked at in, in sort of along with other information and evidence that the prosecutor already does have, I'm sure. So there's been a, an extensive evidence gathering sort of phase already, and there's substantial information that the ICC would already have, uh, you know, with them right now. So they'll be actually judging and assessing this evidence as well, in terms of, you know, ensuring that this is, it, it will stand up in court. I mean, the last thing you want to do is rely on testimony or rely on something that is not going to stand up in court or that is going to be contradicted by other evidence that you have on record. So I think that's the first thing. And of course, that is the prosecutor's job. And that is what she will be doing in terms of, you know, these extensive interviews and discussions with, uh, with the two, uh, you know, soldiers. I think the second point is on genocidal intent. I mean, you know, as you know, we've got these two different cases ongoing right now. ICJ, you've got the ICC. With the ICJ case, of course, it is under the Genocide Convention. The ICC case, as of now, is, you know, crimes that have cross-border jurisdiction. But let's not forget that in the last decision by the pretrial chamber, the door is still open in terms of what the prosecutor would want to charge and what the prosecutor would think would fall within the rubric of this case, which... I think could include genocide. So, you know, as long as there's a cross-border component, there are certain elements that need to be satisfied. So, you know, you, you've still got that on the table, I think, depending really on, on the, the office of the prosecutor and how they want to proceed. In terms of the ICJ case and the relevance of these, the, the testimony of these two soldiers, you know, the ICJ process is very different from the ICC. So it is an adversarial process. It's led by states. So it's really going to depend on the Gambia to pick up on this testimony and decide how and in what way they want to rely on it. And, and again, you know, I think probably the, the positive in terms of timing is that the ICJ case is, is progressing a little slower, you know, linked to, to delays with COVID as well as just the nature of the legal proceedings. I mean, in my mind, yes, I do think that if they, they are able to provide information that speaks to orders coming from above that speaks to a plan that speaks to a you know concerted series of actions that they were meant to take that yes there is the potential for genocidal intent and the inference of that intent but again at the end of the day it really is going to depend on the information that they provide and how it stacks up with the other information that you have and the other big Myanmar news is also related to the ICJ case we have Canada and the Netherlands now announcing that they're going to intervene in the case uh, when we spoke to Akila Radhakishan of the Global Justice Center back in November, when Gambia just declared that it would take Myanmar to the ICJ, she mentioned this possibility as something she hoped for. I think it would be really important for other states to step up and, and show that they're willing to support the case, engage with the case, either through their own applications or by intervening under Article 63 and really 
you know, working with particular facets of the law that interest them. Um, I'm hopeful that some of those um, countries, especially the Netherlands and Canada, where their parliaments have already passed resolutions or taken measures to urge their governments to take this type of action, um, I think it would really show um, a good sense of support from the community for what the Gambia is doing and also help strengthen the case. I'm still skeptical to see if that will actually happen. Clearly, she wasn't sure whether it would happen, and now it has. Um, we'll have to listen. You have to listen to that episode again because it's all about how sexual and gender-based violence and crimes are a huge part of this alleged genocide. And that is also the aspect that the Dutch and Canadian press release, when they said they would join this case, really stressed. So, why have they joined now, and why has it taken so long? Do you think? And what difference would Dutch and Canadian interventions make, Priya? I mean, I think this is a very significant, um, you know, development. Of course, as Akhila said, you know, there have been discussions along these lines for a few months. There's been a lot of hope and anticipation that, that you would have states that would step up and join this ICJ case. Keep in mind that in February, uh, the Maldives said that it would intervene and, you know, announced this publicly. It made the headlines, it made the news. After that, however, there's been silence and we haven't really heard much from the Maldives after that. Uh, safe to say that they, they again indicated that they were coordinating with the Gambia in more detail. So I think, you know, fast forward now, Canada and, and the Netherlands joining in. Um, I think it is, it is extremely significant in two ways. One is just strategically, you know, it's a signal also that they are, the international community of states does you know, feel that this case is extremely significant, that they are stepping up and they are providing support to the Gambia. That seems to have been, you know, a bit alone in this endeavor. And, you know, as many people have pointed out, it's this one lone state that is at the ICJ advocating for the Rohingya against Myanmar. So I think it, it is a strong signal to say that there is support and that there is legal support. One thing I wonder about the intervention is, is this going to be like an amicus thing or is this kind of intervention going to be where they also fund research or lawyers for the Gambia because it's a lot of money to put up an ICJ case? By amicus, you mean a friend of the court thing that we see sometimes where kind of various experts get to get to have their say? No, I think it's more than an amicus. It's, you know, whichever provision Canada and the Netherlands opt to go under and, and there's a lack of clarity in, in that sense in terms of the statute article 62 or article 63 i was very curious about 62 and 63 so it's, it's really a, you know a, a a part of the statute which doesn't get paid too much attention and i just wrote a quick blog post for opinion on the day that that this news came out and we've had a fantastic response and a two-part series by uh Brian McGarry, who's a professor at Leiden University. So, you know, if anybody's interested in more details on that, I would really say read those two blog posts as well. Just very briefly, because I did I did read your story, but um, we talk about the Article 62 and 63, but one of the main differences I see is whether they have to ask the court for permission to join the case and the kind of things they could comment on. Uh, can you explain a bit basic, but still in detail? <laughs> I know that's tricky. Sure. <laughs> I'll try my best. Um, as I said, read the blog post for your for your listeners. But you know, in in brief, sixty two is a route that is not been taken because it does speak to specific interests that a state would have in the dispute in question. So Canada and the Netherlands would have to articulate quite you know quite a detailed specific angle 
if you will, a legal angle in terms of why they are approaching the court beyond the broader question of, you know, we have a stake in the genocide convention. Though I think that's actually quite now increasingly a fairly powerful argument, given that this this case has progressed on the lines of the Gambia, which is a state party to the genocide convention, saying that it's Erga Omle's obligations and it's, you know, it's obligations by virtue of being a state party to this convention. So with that, I would say 62, Article 62 would provide more scope for the states to provide more detailed arguments, you know, to be more involved in the case as it were. Whereas 63 is much more in the sense of, of uh, uh, an amicus, so to speak. Just very, I'm going to nail you down. So 62 says you could join um, if you have a specific interest as a country to join and you should explain to the court why you as that country have this specific interest and not necessarily we all have an interest in keeping the genocide convention going. And 63 is there are legal concerns that are of interest to all of humanity and I should be able to intervene because of that. Uh, no, 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 no. I'll just correct you on that. I mean, you're, you're right on 62. 63 is basically saying there is a, a question of interpretation of the treaty. That's that's being discussed. And so if you are a party to the treaty and, you know, you feel that there are questions or there are concerns linked to this, that's one mode of intervention. So it's really linked to the fact that the court is discussing a treaty that's under dispute or under interpretation. Both countries, Canada and the Netherlands, have said that they are intervening on the subject of sexual and gender-based crimes. Why? That's... uh, a good question, but there's also a very good answer for that, which is the fact that, you know, as, as you all would have probably heard from Akila, you know, the question of, of gender and genocide doesn't really get as much emphasis or as much legal focus as it should. And I think linked specifically to the case of Myanmar, I mean, as you all heard the arguments before the International Court of Justice, the, the aspect of sexual violence, which has come up repeatedly in the fact-finding mission reports, which has been detailed in in really graphic detail as well. You know, that there are numerous reports that talk about this and how it's really been used as as a weapon of war in in the course of the the clearance operations, as, as Stephanie mentioned. The Council for Myanmar really ignored that aspect completely. And, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi at the ICJ also dismissed it and didn't address it at all. And I think it really does seem to be a huge issue that is now not given enough attention. And I think Canada and the Netherlands are absolutely right in saying that this needs to be a key part of the consideration by the court as well. And that, you know, it redirects the focus of the court as well, including, you know, in addition to all the big issues linked to genocide, that this is also a core concern that needs to be looked at. So, so yeah, I, I think it's a very welcome intervention and, and it is legally, you know, uh, on point. Well, the other huge news in our world has been the sanctions imposed by the United States on senior international criminal court personnel. This is in response to the ICC judges saying finally yes to the prosecutor who wants to open an investigation into crimes committed in Afghanistan, a state party of the ICC. Why does it concern the US? Well, torture. Guantanamo, black sites, ICC supporting countries, which were run by the uh, the CIA, and um, all kinds of things that relate to US actions in Afghanistan. 
The US has now come through with details of its sanctions on individuals. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made the declaration describing the ICC as, here we go, a thoroughly broken and corrupted institution, and that the US would, quote, never tolerate its illegitimate attempts to subject Americans to its jurisdiction. Here's Mr. Pompeo in full flow. In June, the Trump administration authorized the imposition of economic sanctions against foreign persons directly engaged in ICC efforts to investigate U.S. or allied personnel and those who materially assisted in, those to, in, the, in that effort. Today, we take the next step because the ICC continues to target Americans, sadly. Pursuant to Executive Order 13928, the United States will designate ICC Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda and the ICC's Head of Jurisdiction Complementarian Cooperation Division Fakiso Mochichuko, for having material assisted prosecutor Ben Suda. Individuals and entities that continue to materially support those individuals risk exposure to sanctions as well. Additionally, State Department has restricted the issuance of visas for certain individuals involved in the ICC's efforts to investigate U.S. personnel. And when we spoke to U.S. law professor and former uh, deputy ambassador for war crimes, Beth von Schaak, in uh, June this year, when a threat has been made against the ICC, she explained the real effects of this kind of sanction. It was described by one individual in Colombia who was subject to these sanctions as a civil death because it it's so impossible to operate in today's world when so much, so many banks people's salaries, et cetera, go through New York, thanks to Alexander Hamilton, right? New York is the center of international banking, and the dollar is essentially the currency used across the globe. And so even if a transaction just passes momentarily through the United States, for example, someone who's getting paid in by direct deposit, that could potentially be subject to seizure. So the, the tool is incredibly robust. And so the fact that it is being deployed against individuals, individual civil servants, international civil servants who are just doing their job, providing a accountability really is a perverse use of this tool. So Priya, um, again, huge news and uh, has huge implications. Let's start with, do you think that actually anything can be done by states, by members of the Assembly of States parties to counter this? I mean, I think short of you know, them they're making very strong statements against it, and especially allies of the U.S., traditional allies of the U.S., really saying this is unacceptable and this is not something that we would expect the U.S. to do, which I think many states have done now. I think the EU has has issued statements. A number of states have, have issued those statements. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is also a matter of U.S. domestic law. And, you know, this is an executive order that the U.S. president has issued. And so... It is in line with this administration's approach towards the ICC. And, you know, it has been for the last few years as well. So the fact that this executive order has been issued is shocking, but it is not entirely, you know, out of character with what the administration has been saying in the last two years or so. If you look at, you know, the Secretary of State's comments, if you look at John Bolton's comments as well, this sort of seems to be a logical progression in terms of the rhetoric being dialed up and then eventually this executive order being issued in June. After June, really one of the questions was, okay, so the executive order is out. Now, is there going to be anything after? is somebody going to be designated under this executive order or not? And it was sort of a bit of a waiting game and sort of, you know, 
everybody's in a holding pattern to see now what happens. And then, of course, now the axe has fallen and you actually have two people, individuals, including the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, who is now a designated individual. So, yeah, I mean, really worrying and, and quite shocking, honestly. And obviously, the, the pick of these people, um, the prosecutor is an obvious uh, target because, well, you know, the public face of the ICC. But the other uh, person is, uh, they're both the only African kind of major figures in the office of the prosecutor. It was pointed out on Twitter that maybe there's a reason for that. Do you think that there is, um, I guess it's not a racist undertone, but there's a like, calculated reason to pick these people that are both from African countries with more kind of weak diplomatic links to the US? I mean, as you say, you know, I think the, the prosecutor would always have been the prime target. So I, I don't think she, you know, they, they would have sanctioned somebody else and not sanctioned her. So I, I think that was a foregone conclusion if the sanctions, you know, if the designation happened. It's a bit speculative, but yes, quite probably in terms of the, the political calculus that goes into this, you know, if you have countries that have a certain amount of clout or greater allies, perhaps you don't want to sort of, um, you know, ruffle their feathers too much. What do you actually think will be the practical effect? Will it actually slow down investigations? Will they will they have to kind of step back, do you think, from some of the work they're doing? Will the prosecutor be able to travel? I know it's speculative, but so, you know, what do you imagine? If you look at, you know, and just to say this up front, I am not an expert on sanctions law and US, you know, domestic processes. But from what little I've gleaned, I mean, and, I, and I've read the executive order as well, the problem is that it is very broad. So it is this really broad sweeping law, which basically places many, many entities and, you know, people within its its fold. So essentially, if you are helping the prosecutor, you're helping the ICC in any way linked to, you know, Afghanistan, linked to these certain situations, which the US is extremely upset about, and which is why this executive order has been issued, you run the risk of falling foul of the sanctions. Or basically, if you are a US entity that assists the prosecutor on any of these situations, you run the risk of basically breaking the law. If you are assisting in any way, if you are providing services, if you are gaining services, you know, so it's a very, very broad scope. There are exemptions in terms of, you know, provision of certain information, but that should have been already ready before the individuals were designated under the sanction regime. So there are one or two exceptions. But again, I mean, it's, it's a fairly complex area of law. But I would just say that this executive order is pretty broad and all-encompassing, so it can catch many people within its net. I think the other impact, in terms of the, the really practical impact, what does this mean? Essentially, it means property or money, finances, that either sit in the U.S., within the U.S. jurisdiction, but the problem is that a lot of banks, a lot of your money gets routed through U.S. jurisdictions. If it's dollar transactions, it'll be through U.S. bank as well. And, you know, banks will potentially not want to deal with anything that might fall foul of this sanctions regime. So... Yeah, quite wide, far-reaching consequences. And even very practical things. When I uh, worked abroad from different countries, I had international health insurance that was somehow routed through the U.S. You can imagine that those are the kind of things that also get, you know, those companies don't want to deal with anything on the sanctions. So it could be affect that, it affects your properties. So I'm assuming that there will also be a lot of people potentially working on these cases with links to the US that might not be so keen to work that particular investigation. Yeah, I, I think it can have far-reaching consequences, really. 
Obviously, we don't know what's going to uh, happen in the end. Uh, we've got the meeting of the Assembly of States parties coming up in some form towards the end of the year. But we've also got the US uh, elections, presidential elections and other elections in November. So um, it's possible that we could see a change of policy or the ASP could actually step up. So we're left yet again in a watch this space. Yes, absolutely. Although the ASP stepping up tends to be finger wagging with no real consequences or signaling it to the UN Security Council, which unfortunately the US has a veto over. So I'm expecting a lot of posturing that maybe the November elections would put the US on a different route. Who knows? Anything that we should be looking up for, Priya, in terms of all of the issues that we've just been talking about? What comes up next, for example, with the uh, ICJ? For the ICJ, now it's a matter of, you know, the states deciding how they're going to intervene and us getting a sense of what that form will take. Um, Of course, the other thing is going to be the next report by Myanmar, which is coming up, I think, next month. So that's one more. I mean, there's been a concerted effort and a lot of advocacy around getting those reports released by the court. So, you know, that, that that's not happened yet. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it feels like every week or every second week, there's something new that happens and that there's some new legal development. So to be honest, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of just catching my breath as well from the last few weeks and, and waiting to see how things move along and how things pan out as well. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. Okay, well, we'll keep on watching along with you. Thanks very much for your time, Priya. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.